You guys know you just sang scripture? Put this verse to memory, 2 Corinthians 1.20. For with God, all his promises are what? Yes and amen. Father, we wanna thank you. We wanna thank you for your promises, God. We wanna thank you that with you, when it is in your will, Father, it is yes and amen. Father, I pray for every single person here within the sound of my voice, those who are online. God, we come to you today with a lot of needs, a lot of desires. Father, would you sanctify those? Would you give us the peace and the confidence of knowing that with you, it is yes and amen. You told us in John's gospel that you shall never leave or forsake us. And for that, we are so grateful. We thank you for worship today, oh God. We thank you for your word. We ask that you speak to us. We are here listening. We have come not to play church, God, but to have an encounter with you, the living God. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Come on and praise the Lord. Can you thank this band for the way they lead us? You guys are awesome. Every single one of you, thank you so much. Well, someone said to me earlier, actually quite a few people have said to me today, uh, there's a great spirit in the house of the Lord. And I have said to them, yeah, it's amazing what will happen when you give everybody 15 additional minutes. <laughs> I actually don't think that's the case. I think there's just a Christmas spirit of joy uh, in the house of the Lord. But it is nice, is it not, to have an additional 15 minutes. Some of you have taken my advice and you didn't change your schedule. You just imagined that church was still at 1030 a.m., which was a beautiful thing because you came here on time and God is good. Hey, just a couple of things just by way of uh, looking ahead. I know it's hard to believe Christmas is here, Christmas season, but Christmas is literally here in uh, a matter of a few weeks. Um, we have Christmas services. Go ahead and mark your calendars. We start on Christmas Eve Eve, December 23rd. December 23rd, 6 p.m. And before I move on, let me just say, if you're able to attend that Christmas service, come on out on the 23rd. It'll help us with traffic control on the 24th. And then we have two services on uh, Christmas Eve, December 24th at 2 and 4 p.m. So just pick whichever one works for you, and we can't wait to have you. Now, Christmas is on a Saturday, on Sunday, listen closely, on Sunday, December 26th, we will not be having church up in here. When? December 26th. So come on the 23rd or the 24th, gather with your family or loved ones on the 25th, but don't, don't come here on the 26th. And if you do, God bless you, just have a great worship service right out there in the parking lot. In fact, come on up to the baptistry if you won't baptize yourself. It's all good. But... but <laughs> But the building will be locked down, and uh, we will not have church on the 26th, and then we will kick off on, if I'm not mistaken, this somewhere like January 5th or something like that, uh, or 2nd. I don't know, whatever it is. I can't think that far. 2nd, January 2nd, we'll kick off New Year uh, with a new series. Hey, do we have any cheerful givers in the house? Yeah, I want to thank you for sowing into the ministry of this church. There's all kinds of ways to give. In fact, if you've been putting it off, you can take out your phone right now and simply text NH Movement to 77977, and you'll be prompted on how to go through the process, or you can give online later. We also have the black boxes scattered around the building that says, your generosity changes lives. Amen. 
So I just wanna thank you for that. Hey, today we have an incredible treat. Um, it's been quite a while since this sister has been up in here teaching. She, uh, she was on the teaching team uh, prior to 2020, and we all know how 2020 and 2021 has been, but I am so thankful that uh, we are out of that and we are turning a corner. Amen, church. You can feel it in the air. So we've got Tiana Spencer back in the house. You guys remember Tiana, Tiana, and uh, she is a gift from the Lord and uh, I just praise God for her, her ministry. She is a worship leader. She's also a preacher of the gospel. She is married. She's got three kids. They suffer for Jesus out in L.A., California. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they just live in a beautiful area. Not in L.A. proper, but out of L.A. a little bit. And so um, get ready. Open up that app if you want. You can take notes on the New Hope app or in your Bible or in your journal, whatever the case may be. But do what you do, New Hope, and let's give her a warm welcome. She hasn't been here in a while, so let's welcome her back. Here we go. Good morning. Good morning, New Hope. It's been a long time. Last, I think 2019 was the last time I was here, which is crazy, right? But we've seen a couple videos your way, I think, since then. So um, y'all have seen me. I have not seen you. So it was good to actually be here in person. How you guys doing today? You good? You sure? Y'all talkative? Okay, I, I like a little talk back. Okay, you won't distract me. It'll be good. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 13. Verse 13. One verse today. We're going to just sit in it um, and unpack it. It says, Romans 12, 13 says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. One of my favorite movies uh, growing up, uh, now I, just, I still watch it. I just recently introduced my kids to it. It was a movie called The Truman Show. How many of you guys have seen that movie? Who hasn't seen The Truman Show? Oh, gosh, you guys are killing me. It is such a good movie. I'm going to ruin it for you here, but it's okay because it's been out too long. So if you haven't seen it now, oh, well. Um, but anyway, hopefully after that, you'll go see it. Truman is about an insurance salesman whose whole life is actually a reality TV show but he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. So he's born in, on Sea Haven Island, and it's a whole story about his life. Um, the entire island of Sea Haven is actually complete fabrication. It's a massive set surrounded by this huge protective dome that literally has the most sophisticated effects. It, like they mimic the sky, the weather, the temperature. It has an ocean, like a huge set. So he has no clue that this whole world has been created just for him. And so as we're watching this show, we know it's a TV show. Truman does not know that he is the star of this national television show that runs 24 hours a day. It never goes off. Until one day, something starts to set Truman off as he starts to realize something's not right. He's actually getting ready to go to work, and something falls out of the sky, and it is one of those studio lights. And he looks at it, it's the oddest thing. But then the radio station on the way to work begins to play. It says that there's a plane crash that happened, so some of the stuff shed. So he begins to think, okay, well, that was normal. But as the still goes on, you start to see that he's just starting to pick up other little things start happening to where he realized something is not right. See, Truman, his mom, his mom and dad, they're all actresses. 
his cousins, his best friend, his wife, they're all actresses. Everybody in this world has been created just for Truman. And as he starts to figure out something's not right, Truman gets very unsettled. And he decides he has to figure out how to get out of this place to the real world. Now, there's a guy who created this whole world. His name is Christoph. He is the creator of that world. His whole job is to keep Truman there because Truman generates a lot of money for Christoph, right? So his whole job, but Truman decides he has to get free. So we see this whole scene play out where he is riding across this fake ocean to finally get to the end of the set. He is determined, literally almost gets killed on the way. He is determined to get out of this show to actually get finally to real life. As I watch that show, and it is so fascinating, if you watch it, you can see it through a different lens. As I see Truman fighting for his life to get out of this world that's been manufactured for him, that's been manipulated for him, to control him, to keep him in a certain way, uh, Truman proves something to me that we all know to be true. The first step towards freedom is recognizing you're in bondage. That's the first step towards freedom. And so once Truman realized, once Truman realized he was in bondage, he began his pursuit towards freedom. I want to talk about bondage today, a bondage that we don't often talk about, but that most of us Americans are enslaved to. The bondage of spending. The bondage of money. I want to talk about it because just like Truman, it's like the first step towards freedom is recognizing that you're unbonded. But a lot of us, we have the, 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 this world has been created and manufactured to where we have actually, some of us don't care that we're in bondage, or we actually don't fully believe that we are actually in bondage to the love of money and to all the things that, um, that we're going to talk about today. Some months ago, my husband and I read a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Have you, anybody read that book? Oh my gosh, you guys are killing me. You have to read that book. It was by John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I am pretty sure it's required reading for eternity. So don't, don't quote me on it, but I think that's what I heard. You have to read that book. It is, it is life-changing, been life-changing for us. Um, he lays out this case of how hurry is destroying culture at large, but especially disciples of Christ the lifestyle of hurry, how busy we are, how we're going and going and going. And so he talks about how we really, as Christians, we're supposed to be living the opposite life. That we're, not, we're not supposed to be living the way, the culture, but the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, which is look, looked at so, looks so differently than the way the culture is. And he goes through these disciplines, specifically, specifically different disciplines that help you lead more of the way of Jesus. And one of the disciplines I want to talk about today, briefly, is the discipline of simplicity. This was a pistol, which is directly related to how much we actually spend, how much we overindulge in, in the materialism of this world. This discipline of simplicity. And the reason why he talks about it, because he realizes this is a bondage for many of us. We have so much excess. The French sociologist John Baldridge, he said this. He made a point that in the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity, but shopping has. John Mark Comer says in his book, he says, shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America, usurping the place previously held by religion. Amazon.com, he says, is a new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double-clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses, and money is the new God. Now, y'all sitting there because we all know it's true, right? 
We all know it's true. Uh, uh, but but, but this, it didn't used to be the case. As, as, as crazy as we've obviously, our world has gotten with all the advancements, it didn't used to be a case. We used to shop based on our needs. But then something shifted around the 1920s. It makes this case uh, uh, that, uh, that actually one Wall Street banker said it this way. When the 1920s were happening, they realized that they needed to shift something. He's actually uh, one of the founders of the Lehman Brothers. This is what he said. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. This was the plan. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. He says, man's desires must overshadow his needs. This is the thinking behind our culture today. This is a thinking that has fueled what's been crazy with the whole, uh, the, the world that we've got in the industrial world. E.S. Kondrick, a pioneer of industrial relations, he called it the new economic gospel of consumption. The, do you hear that word? The gospel of consumption. We become a people that just consume, consume. That was their plan, and guess what? We've fallen for it. Hook, line, and sinker. They've created this world for us, and we've all become Trumans, just living in it, living in it, being manipulated by it, participating in all the things they want us to participate. But what if we, just like Truman, one day just said we've had enough? What if we stopped? What if we live completely differently? What if we decided to get out of the machine and live a life that's completely countercultural to the one the world and the enemy wants us to live, the one that is actually death to our souls? What if we got tired of playing into the games, uh, this pseudo-happiness that we've thought that we now are living into materials creating for us? The pseudo-happiness. And what if we begin to, like Richard Foster said, live a cheerful and happy revolt against the spirit of materialism? What if that was us? We say a cheerful revolt because you know what? When you live the way God wants you to live, it actually brings joy to your life. We think we'll go without. But he says, what, when you actually realize that you're living this way, you actually believe when Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. If we actually live that way, you actually begin to have more of a cheerful and happy and joyful and peaceful life. So what if we decided to revolt against the spirit of materialism? What if we decided that we're enough. What if our lives just became more, became more about than what we could just buy or what we could attain, what, what our status we could have? How do we do that, though? Well, we do it by living according to his way and not theirs. Am I right? We do it according to, but, but that's, that's obviously easier said than done because there are reasons why we dive into this world of materialism. But I want to talk today really quickly. How do we become a people? that lead a cheerful and happy revolt against the spirit of materialism and all the plans that the enemy has in our lives through it. Three ways, according to Scripture, that we can revolt against that is, one, release your scarcity. Two, respond to necessities. And three, remember his hospitality. Number one, release your scarcity. Two, respond to necessities. And three, remember his hospitality. Let me pray. God, I am. Thank you. Your children have come here to listen. I thank you that your presence has already met us here. You're speaking. God, would you take this word and you divide it and multiply it and use it to speak individually to each one of your children this morning. We bless you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got any rebels in the room? 
Any rebels in the room? Y'all, I'm telling you, when I read that stuff, I was so irritated. Because it was like, we've been, you know, I mean, and there's so many documentaries about this, but it's just like, we've been, we've been like bamboozled and just like, you know, all this stuff that's happening that's constantly at us. And like, I actually was, me and my husband started living a life of minimalism. We started launching into it a few months ago and it just has been life changing for us. But one of the ways, the first way I'm gonna talk about today is we sit in this today and we figure how do we begin to revolt against the spirit of materialism, the spirit of greed and, and everything's for us. Release your scarcity. He says, Romans 12, 13, the first thing he says is share. I'm gonna stop right there. Share. Somebody say share. Share. We're supposed to be a people who share. Now we see toddlers struggling with this and we get all on them, don't we? Right? We, see, we tell them all the time, share, share, share. But if we're honest, sharing don't come easy to a lot of us adults either, am I right? It actually goes against everything that comes natural to us. Why? Because a lot of us, our natural inclination is to protect myself and what's mine. I think about me. And so sharing or generosity goes against that because it is to give freely. It's to give freely and that is scary. It's scary to give freely, why? Because a lot of us function in what's called this mindset of scarcity. You see, I think we deep down believe the lie that there's not enough. There is not enough. So if I'm generous, then logically that means I'll miss out. If, I, if I, To give means to leave me lacking. Are y'all tracking with me? We're saying if, if I do what God is asking me to do, it's gonna create a deficit in my life, and then who's gonna take care of that? So we won't ask these questions out loud, but a lot of times it becomes the, the, the reason why we are hoarding and we are keeping and we are not living the way we're supposed to be living while we are diving into this uh, materialism world. Who's gonna take care of me? We ask that question. If I give this, who's gonna take care of me? See, to function in scarcity, if you think about it, it's to do one thing, it's to dismiss the promise of God. To function in scarcity, dismiss the promise of God, what do I mean? It means it's to believe the lie that God's not gonna take care of me. If I'm functioning in scarcity, if I'm hoarding, it means to believe the lie that God is not going to take care of me. It's because to share is to trust that I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to be okay. I can afford to give this away. You see, because God calls us to share. In fact, throughout scripture, he continually calls us to be generous people, right? He honors generosity. It's never a command uh, to be given and be left without, though. It's never a command to be given and be left without. It is, it's always give and he'll provide. Give and he'll provide. It's always be reciprocal. Hold everything I give to you freely and ready to give away to someone else, knowing that it is returning right back to you. Somehow, some way to share is to realize that if something leaves your hands, something else is returning to it. But here's the thing, we don't just give just to get. That's not why we're doing it, but we're trusting in God's divine process. When we give, we're trusting in God's divine process a return on the investment that we're gonna be okay. It's to depend on nothing else but the hand of God. Not my budget, not my planning, not what I had, had to, what I was supposed to spend this money on. It's to depend on nothing else but the hand of God. It's to not need anything else but his promise over my life. He's gonna take care of me. You see, there is a divine exchange that happens when we're generous. What we are doing, church, is we are trading self-preservation for trusting God's provision. 
Every time Regina says what we're doing, we are trading self-preservation for trust in God's provision. You see, a sharer is not someone who is consumed with themselves, but it's also not someone who disregards themselves. It's just that they have a higher regard for God's provision than they do for their own preservation. A generous person, how we're supposed to live to combat this whole materialism in this face, is a person we're supposed to live with a higher regard for God's provision than we do our own preservation. Which one do you regard more? Think about your life. Think about how you live. Do you have a higher regard for God's provision for you or a higher regard for your preservation of yourself? You don't have to answer out loud. (laughs) But I think it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. You see, a mindset of scarcity will make you a hoarder of all things. But a mindset of generosity will make you a recipient of his everything. I'm going to say that one more time. A mindset of scarcity will make you a hoarder of all things. I have to keep what's mine. But a mindset of generosity will make you a recipient of his everything. Luke 6.38 says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with, measure, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Proverbs 19.70 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 2 Corinthians 9.68 says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, to live how God has called us to live, is to live attached, is to live not attached to anything, ready to surrender all things, knowing that he will take care of everything. I'm going to say it one more time, to live how God calls us to live, not the way the culture is. To live how God calls us to live is to live not attached to anything but ready to surrender all things, knowing he will take care of everything. Everything. Which means we can release the scarcity. Right? We don't have to live attached to anything. We can be free to just give. Just just give. Doesn't that just sound like freedom? To not have to worry about it. Just give. Now here's the deal. This is not just about releasing scarcity when it comes to money but when it comes to all areas. You see, for some of us, being generous with money is the easy part. It's your time you're hoarding. It's your gift you're hoarding. Some of us, we can th- you, 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 you can still throw money at something and still be stingy. Can we just say, can we say the truth? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. My husband, I love him, love him to death. He's not here, so I'm gonna talk about him. <laughs> he... He is a hoarder of his just personal space and his time. It's something that, that the Lord has been, you know, dealing with him on because he realized like he just feels like it's a thing that really comes from a trauma wound of him just not feeling, I don't, I won't have enough left for me if I give it to time to my kids, if I give the time to this or to the church and, you know, all this stuff, I won't have time for me. And so he kind of goes into this cocoon. Is anybody else like that? Where it just, it's, it's actually, it actually feels scary 
when you're in that space. But yet, I, I believe God, when he's calling us to be generous, it's not just generous with our money, it's generous with us in general, in general. And so, uh, but, but then, I think we have to ask ourselves, the question comes, if we feel like I can't, I can't give my time away, I can't afford to give my, my attention away, I can't afford to give my love away, we're thinking all these different things, whatever's coming up for you right now, I think the question that we naturally wanna ask, okay, Tiana, well, how much do I have to get away, give away? Like, how much can I get away with? You know what I'm saying? Like, the question is really is, is how generous is, is, is too generous? Like, really, that's the question we should be asking. Or even, okay, I hear that, but at what point do I take care of myself? That's a real question. At what point do I take care of myself? At what point do I protect myself? That's a real question. But here's what I think. I think, you know, when, when, when he's talking to believers in this passage, people who are supposed to be disciples of Christ, and even in Scripture, when Jesus is telling us to live this way, to be generous, um, he's talking to people who are supposed to be living like Jesus, meaning, meaning people who have the healthy rhythms of Jesus, right? People who are, who are in prayer, people who are in solitude, people who are spending, spending time in silence and Bible study and Sabbath, the, the, the disciplines that we talk about, people that are being poured into in the way that they're designed to being poured into. And if we are living that way, then we are being generous from a place of health and not unhealth. Do y'all see that? If we're living the way we're supposed to live, the way Jesus had in mind for us to live, then our generosity is not competing with our care of ourselves, but it's flowing out of our most cared for self. Look at Jesus. Jesus was, you see him all in scripture. He's, he's out there doing ministry. And there's one point in scripture, he hears about his cousin dying, John the Baptist. And the scripture says he withdrew from there to just be alone. But then after he got from that space of being alone with the Lord and praying and all that stuff, then he came out and he saw a crowd. And he, the Bible says he had compassion on the crowd and he healed them. He gave generously. A few verses later, after doing a lot of ministry, he told his disciples to go on ahead of him. And again, he withdrew to a place of solitude to pray. From there, he went and walked on water to meet the disciples, and that famous passage happens where the, the storm is happening. And so he goes from the place of prayer, he calmed the winds and the waves, and he saved the disciples' lives. In that moment, he gave generously of himself. But I want you to pay attention to this. He came from a place of solitude to give. He came from a place of prayer to give. His generosity did not compete with his care of self. His generosity flowed out of his most cared for self. But you see, the problem is too many of us are trying to care for ourselves with credit cards. Chocolate, I like chocolate. <laughs> Netflix, all the different, we're trying to care for ourselves in these ways and then we're wondering why we are so stressed and we have no capacity to give or be generous or do any of those things. And God's like, that's not, that's not we're not telling you to, to give from that. Of course you're empty. Of course you can't afford to be generous. You are most cared for, church, in his presence. You are most cared for in prayer. You are most cared for in his word. And when you are living a life in which you are most cared for, you can live a life with most cares for other people as well. Do you see the switch there? This whole book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, is all about the disciplines. It's all about living a life that's living the way of Jesus because he makes this beautiful case that's really biblical. There's like, you can't, you can't live in the way of the culture and still do and be who God's called you to be. 
We have to be different. And so if we're talking about going against the materialism and living life differently and actually being rebels and revolting against this system and beginning to live a generous life, it has to come from a place where we are being taken care of first, where God is filling us up. God is filling us up. You want to know how to release the scarcity? Spend time with the God of abundance. Spend time with God, but you cannot do what he's called you to do unless you are living the way he's called you to live. This is why the disciplines are so important. They are how you place yourself in a position to be most cared for by God. Sitting in silence is not just sitting in silence. It's placing yourself in a position to be most cared for by God. Spending time in solitude is not just being alone, but it's placing yourself in a position to be most cared for by God. In his word, doing Sabbath, it's setting your time aside and setting your attention toward God so he can fill you up so you can go out and do and be all that he's called you to do and be. The first step toward revolting against the spirit of materialism is releasing the scarcity and receiving his abundance so we can be givers of his abundance. Amen? Amen. Second way you cheerfully revolt against the spirit of materialism is to respond to necessities. Verse 13 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. This word share is actually the word koinonia, which means fellowship. It describes the sharing of one's possessions with the implication of some kind of joint participation, okay? So there's mutual interest. In other words, it's called for a lifestyle of sharing. It's this idea that we belong to each other. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. It's kind of like what the church was, was started out as in the book of Acts. You know, we talked about the fact that they would sell all their possessions and everything belonged to everybody. That was the church. That's still supposed to be the church. What's mine is yours. This is an insane way to look at it, though, in this culture. Because in our culture, it's every man for himself. Even in the church, a lot of times, it can be every man for himself. I've earned mine, so why am I giving you anything? Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. We are now in the church, in, in, in the culture today, we are now more concerned with not being responsible for each other than we are with being loving to each other. We are more concerned with not being responsible for each other than we are with being loving to each other. But Paul says, be generous with the saints who are in need. He didn't say don't try to assess the need and reason why they should or should not have the need. Be generous towards the saints who are in need. But why don't we live like this? Because for some reason, we can look at each other and subconsciously draw a line of separation between us. We think that has nothing to do with me. That's, that's their life. I have my own. We won't say this stuff out loud, but this is it's, it's almost, it's a subconscious thing we do. We're, we're drawing a line of separation between us. That's them. This is me. And this is the problem. It serves as our protection. We don't even realize we're doing this, but it serves as our protection. Why? Because as soon as I draw a line of separation in my brain, I'm able to justify my segregation from their pain. As soon as I draw a line of separation in my brain, I'm able to justify my segregation from their pain. It doesn't affect me. So now I'm able to live as though it doesn't affect me. You see, as long as I can remain unconnected, I can remain unaffected. So we, we live our lives turning, turning the other way. Now, I didn't hear that. 
I didn't hear about that. Or, I, or, or just even just talking bad. Well, why are they in that situation? Or this and all, all these questions, we, we make it's their problem. It's their problem. But here's the thing. We know we are all connected. Somebody say we're connected. Because y'all quiet in here. We are all connected. In fact, Jesus prayed that we would be one. It was his last prayer for us, literally right before he was betrayed and was sent to the cross for us. His prayer was that we would be one, just like he and the Father are one. He said he gave us his glory so that we could be one, united. Paul says it this way in Corinthians, that we are the body of Christ. The ear can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and vice versa. I designed you to function as one, meaning when you hurt, when one of you hurts, all of you hurts. When one has a need, all has a need. We are supposed to be looking out for each other. This is how God designed it. So in the body of Christ, it cannot be every man for himself. Can you imagine if Christ would have lived like that? We would all be on our way to hell. He was one man for every man. Christ was one man for every man. So what keeps us from living this way? Why do we keep drawing the line of separation as if we're not one body? Why, why don't I automatically look at my brother and see their need is my need when we're connected? You know why? Because to acknowledge connection is to acknowledge a call to action. And we don't want to do that because we're afraid it's going to cost too much. For some of us, we're afraid it's going to cost too much. So what we do is we go through our lives allowing ourselves to live under this facade of disconnection in order to justify the selfishness of our inaction. We're allowing ourselves to live under this facade of disconnection in order to justify the selfishness of our inaction. And we think we're dodging extra obligations when we're living this way, but we're actually, you guys, missing out on one of God's greatest invitations. One of his greatest invitations to participate in the miracle of God's provision. You see, to respond to the needs of the body is only an obligation if you don't understand your connection. When you look at Jesus, Jesus was walking in the crowds. He looked and he saw the crowds and he said to them, he said, they are a sheep without a shepherd. And he saw it was his calling to meet their needs. So he got to participate in the miracle that God wanted to do in their lives. There was a connection there. He acknowledged it. When he was with the disciples and the, and the disciples were, were feeding, they were with all the people and the people got hungry. The disciples says, they need to eat. Let them go get something to eat. Jesus said, you feed them. <laughs> Do y'all see? He, he, Jesus said, you guys are connected. There's no separation between you guys. They're not on their own. You feed them. You take care of them. And because of their obedience, they got to participate in the miracle God wanted to do in the lives of his children. They got to participate in the miracle provision. Listen, we all want miracles. But you need to realize that a lot of times miracles come through the hands of God's people. Which means we all have the chance to be one. Have you thought about that? You have the chance to be somebody's miracle. We have the chance to be somebody's miracle. And y'all, there is such beauty in being the answer to someone's prayer. I've been sick for 20 years with lupus, and it's an autoimmune disease that, that uh, my immune system can't tell the difference between a good cell and a bad cell, so it just attacks everything. 
And so there's been a lot of hospital beds, a lot of pain, but there's also been a lot of secrecy. I so ashamed to have people take care of me. For the first half of my diagnosis, for the, really up until five maybe years ago, uh, my husband was sworn to secret. If I was sick, nobody could know. He, no one knew, no one ever visited me in a hospital up until five years ago. I mean, I would lock it down to my husband's demise too. He had to work so hard. There was a lie though I was believing that I just don't want to be a burden. You know, and it's something I think we all can struggle with, that feeling, I just don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be, to be weak right now. I don't want someone else taking care of me, and so I don't want anybody to ever see me in these moments. I just don't want to be a burden. But the Lord gave me a gift, and, 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 and since then, the last five years, God has done so much healing in my life in regards to that area. But, but this year was the first year I fully understood the gift of giving my friend uh, early this year, her husband, my age, just suddenly died. Suddenly died, not in the night. And she has two small kids. And uh, I remember, you know, getting the call early in the morning. And um, every week, we were over her house. And we would sit with her. And we would cry on the day she wanted to cry. We would laugh on the day she wanted to laugh. We would hear stories of her husband on the day she wanted to do that. Every week, we would sit with her. Then I started to see in her the same thing that I saw in myself. She just felt this, I don't want to be a burden. She hated receiving from us this love that we would show up and give her. She hated it because she said, I don't want to be a burden. And it was in that moment I realized, and I told her, this is not a burden. This is such a gift and a sacred honor to be able to relieve any parts of her pain for even just moments was an honor. And the Lord showed me this is exactly what it is for you, Tiana. All those people that have been wanting to love on you all those years, all those people that have been wanting to be, do, provide for you, bring groceries for you, clean your house, all those things, it's an honor for them to be welcomed into that sacred space. You see, my connection to my friend gives me the gift of being responsible for her. It's a gift that we get to show up for each other, it's a gift that we get to show up in sacred spaces and be miracles, the hands and feet of Jesus for each other. So what would it look like for this season for you to not only respond to necessities, but to look for necessities to respond to? For you intentionally put your eyes out there and say, God, what are you doing? God, where can I show up? God, what can I do? God, what miracle can I participate in with you today? How can I partner with you to bless this person, to meet that need? What if we live lives that instead of searching for the best sales, we search for opportunities to partner with Jesus and to be the answer to someone's prayer? This is not an obligation, but it's an invitation to be the hands and feet of Jesus and participate in the miraculous provision from Jesus. Radical generosity, being able to revolt against the spirit of materialism starts with us beginning to respond to the people's necessities. But not even just inactively, but actually looking for them. Actively looking to respond. Actively looking to be the answer to someone's prayer. Amen? Listen, the last way you revolt, and I'm out of here, is we need to remember his hospitality. The last way we revolt against a spirit of materialism, remember his hospitality. He says in verse 12, 13, it's simple. Practice hospitality. It's easy. He says practice hospitality. 
What is he talking about? This is literally this idea of pursuing being kind to strangers. It was a practice of them, of, 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 them, of the Jewish people, opening your house to those traveling through making them feel comfortable, and even in some cases, treat it like royalty. Hospitality had such a high value in Scripture, dating all the way back to when God said this to the Israelites. This is why it had a high value. He says in Leviticus 19, 33-34, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, you, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Exodus 22 says, any, any good Israelite could finish this sentence, okay? They knew it. This was the life they lived by. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That was constant reminder God was telling you, this is where I brought you from. This is what I've done for you. So God is saying, when he's saying this is how you treat the strangers, God is saying, remember what I've done to you. Remember my kindness toward you. Remember when you were a stranger, when you had nowhere to go, no one to help. Remember my kindness toward you and go and do the same. Go and do the same. And so that's how they would do it. They would do this. Hospitality, practice hospitality is a way to remember, honor, and participate in the grace of God. This is why we do it. It's the same for us believers today. Do you realize that we too were once strangers? I mean, do you realize we were once strangers? Ephesians 2 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says you are no longer strangers. You've now been welcomed in. Don't forget my grace. And don't forget that my grace does not stop with you. My grace is supposed to flow through you. It's supposed to flow through you. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of the unforgiving servant. This guy had, uh, he, he was, I'm sorry, he was not able to pay back his master 10,000 bags of gold. So the master ordered his wife and his children to be sold back to, to pay the debt. But the servant fell on his knees and he begged for forgiveness. And the master forgave him. But then that same servant went out and he found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. The same man. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, please be patient with me. But he refused and said he went off and he had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. What happened in this story? Did he forget the grace that he just received? I mean, he just received an insane amount of grace. And then he turned around, did, and he completely denied it for someone else. Did he forget the grace? I don't think he forgot the grace. It was an insane amount of grace. 
I don't think he forgot the grace. I think he just ignored the responsibility that comes with it. And I think we could be in danger of doing the same thing. We have been given so much grace. But we can easily ignore the responsibility that comes with it. The grace was not just meant for us. It was meant to flow through us. We are not just recipients of it, y'all, but we are stewards of it and conduits of it. So practicing hospitality means to live out the grace you've received. Give out the grace you've received. You are a representation, God's saying, of my hospitality, of my love, of my grace. One author says this, when we practice hospitality, we experience the thrill of feeling God's power conquer our fears and our stinginess. This is how we're supposed to live. The exact opposite of what the culture would say. So what does that look like, strategic hospitality? Just a couple of ways. Ask, ask yourself this question. Hospitality is it, it's something that thinks strategically, and it asks the question, how can I draw the most people into a deep experience of God's hospitality by the use of my home or even my church? Just practically. Ask yourself this question. How can I draw the most people into a deep experience of God's hospitality by the use of my home or my church home? Uh, who do I know that might be battling against loneliness? How can I show up? How can I show up? How can I be a conduit instead of a hoarder in this season? Living this way, we just don't become the recipients of God's hospitality, but we become givers of it as well. So how do we become a people that lead a cheerful and happy revolt against the spirit of materialism? Y'all, we release the scarcity and we trust that God's going to take care of us. We don't have to hoard. We don't have, we, he's going to take care of us. We respond to the necessities. We be the people of God that look Look for needs and partner with God to be a miracle for somebody else. And then we remember his hospitality. He's done too much for us to keep it for ourselves. His grace does not stop with us. His grace flows through us for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, you are so good. God, you've been so good. God, every single one of us inhales air we do not deserve to inhale. But because you say so, we sit here today. God, you've given us so much grace. God, the temptation is to just stay in this culture and to be a constant consumer. But God, we're asking right now, a spirit of rebellion would rise up in this place. God, that we would not just be content with the status quo, that just like Truman, we would want to break out to live on the life that we were truly meant to live. One that actually comes with the peace and the joy that so many of these people, people in the world are searching for. So God, would you make us conduits of your grace? of your miraculous provision, of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.